Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad that you're here to worship the Lord with us. A couple months ago, I had the privilege of giving the devotional for Jay uh, Palatucci's grace story. And um, the scripture text Jay and I picked out was the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15. And as I was doing my preparation for my 10-minute devotional, I realized uh, that I had about 45 minutes worth of things I wanted to say. So I asked Peter if he thought it was all right if I did a 45-minute devotional, and he didn't think it was. I don't know why. So I asked him if I could come back to the text later and give it a full sermon. And so we are going to be back in Luke 15 today. Please uh, forgive me for um, going back to this text, but I will say this is indeed one of the richest uh, parables that Jesus tells, one of the richest parables that we have in the Gospels, and it deserves its place as um, being well-known by many, Christian and non-Christian, as a magnificent uh, teaching of the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to be reading the first two verses of Luke 15, and then I'm going to read the entire parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, starting in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Going to verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Our souls rejoice in the good news that we were lost and now we've been found. We wandered And you have brought us home through the cross, through the cross where your your blood ran red and our sins were washed white. We pray, Lord God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. People move around a lot these days. People change locations uh, fairly frequently. And recently, I have an uncle who sent me a four-page genealogy of um, my heritage on my maternal side. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was fairly interesting. I learned some things about my family. The, the earliest date I found on the genealogy was 1522, going back that far. And... Um, I was not able to figure out how far back the blonde afro goes in my family. Um, that is still uh, that was not in the genealogy. But I found out a few other things that were very interesting. I found um, many of my descendants on my maternal side came from France. And as I was looking at this four-page genealogy, um, I, I, I noticed something about uh, how people lived many hundreds of years ago versus now. And, and the, one of the concepts that hit me was this concept of rootedness. You know, you would see um, the, the grandmother and then the, um, the child would be in the same town, be born and, and die in the same town. And you would see generations of people from the same place. And as I thought about this um, concept, I thought about the concept of home. I'm from Georgia. My wife, Betsy's from Illinois. We met in Chattanooga, attended seminary in St. Louis, and now we live in Teaneck, New Jersey. Who can say that back to me? Um, America's a nation of immigrants, isn't it? So when you hear the question, where is your home, which is a question that people have always asked, right? For ever since human beings existed, people have said the question, hey, where are you from? Where is your home? As I ask that question now, think in your minds, what thoughts and emotions and ideas come to mind? Where is your home? Robert Frost said this, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. I think we can probably do a little bit better than that um, for a definition of home. Home should be a safe place. Now, for some of you, your home growing up, it wasn't a safe place. It, it was a place that came with many hardships. But I think all of us intuitively, even if that was your experience at home, you know that home should be a safe place. It should be a place of belonging. It should be a place of peace and love and acceptance. 
Home should be a refuge. It should be a refuge from life storms, whether physical or emotional or relational. And if that's our definition of home, a place of safety, a place of acceptance, a place of love, a place of refuge, then we could define home spiritually as being in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, our true home as people made in the image of God, as people made to know God and to love God, is to be in his presence. And it's to find refuge in the shadow of his wings. Just three simple points from this parable that we're going to look at this morning. Leaving home, coming home, and the end of the story. Three very simple points. Leaving home, coming home, and the end of the story. First of all, leaving home. This is quite obvious from the text because the prodigal son literally leaves his home. He literally leaves his um, his address where he was from. But I want us to see that it's actually deeper than that. The prodigal son doesn't just leave his his address, his place of residency. He leaves the love and protection of his father to do his own thing. He wants to be the man. He wants to be the boss. He is so ready to get out from dad's thumb and uh, go and do his own thing. And so he says to his dad, hey, give me give me what's mine. And his father obliges and he chases money, sex and power to find freedom. And of course, he doesn't find them. He, he ends up destitute. But there are really two sons in this story. I mentioned this a couple of months ago during my devotional. Really, this story would would better be titled the the story of the two sons, because there's an older son in this parable as well. We don't um, find out much about him until the end of the story. But he, too, um, has left home in a sense. You would say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? He, He he's living in his parents home. He's living with his with his father. But you can see, especially at the end of this parable with his words, which, by the way, are so disrespectful, particularly in that context, he, de- he is despising his father. He is despising his father's authority in his life. And his words at the end of the parable are filled with anger. He, too, has left home. He's left home in the sense that he has left the love and protection of being under his father's rule. This is what I want us to see. All of us have left home. Every one of us. We've all left the home, the love and the security of being in our father's presence. Why? Because just like the prodigal son or the older son, we ultimately don't want to live under God's authority, do we? We ultimately don't want to be accountable to God. We love the idea that God is watching over us and we love the idea that God is there when we need to pray to him. Right. And he is. But we're not too crazy about the idea that everything in our lives should be under God's authority, that God is the king and he has full rights over our lives. So instead, we pursue control. We pursue what we want. We look for that peace just like the prodigal son, and we don't find it. Is, is break, are breaking God's commands sinful? Yes, absolutely they are. But breaking God's commands so often is just how we manifest our rebellion to God's rule in our lives. We don't want 
to be under God's rule and authority. We want to leave home and think that we'll find the peace that only God can give us. To help us understand this, let's let's think about this question. Why did God make humanity? Why did God make you and me, brothers and sisters? And um, the Bible tells us that God didn't make us and then say, humanity, um, have fun, go do whatever you want. I'm now going to go back to doing God things, whatever those things are. And uh, you guys just go ahead and enjoy your life. That's actually an old heresy that is coming back sometimes, and it's called deism. And it's the idea that God kind of just winds up the clock and then says to humanity, just do whatever you want. I'm now out of your lives. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God loves his creation, that he's involved with his creation every minute of our lives. He's involved. He's always watching over. He's always sustaining his creation. Colossians 1.17 says that in Jesus... All things hold together. In other words, at every minute of our lives, including this very second as I am speaking to you, Jesus is sustaining this universe. God is intimately involved in his creation. And humanity was made for a purpose. And if I were to ask you to, to say, what's the purpose that humanity was made for? What answer would come to your mind? I think a good summary that we could give from the scriptures is that God made humanity to glorify his name by serving, by knowing him and serving as his representatives in the world to show forth his love, his beauty, his creativity, his power, his goodness. We were designed to be mirrors, brothers and sisters, to this creation. That's why God says, take care of the animals and take care of my creation, because we were made to represent God to the world. And this is why we see humanity is so is capable of so much uh, beauty and brokenness. That's a phrase they used to tell us at seminary. Beauty and brokenness, glory and garbage. It's all mixed in together with humanity, isn't it? The view that everything that we are is simply the, the result of unguided evolutionary adaptations over time goes against both our intuition and our experience of the world. We see humanity capable of so much goodness and so much brokenness, and the story of the Bible gives us the best explanation for why that is. How many times when you see a painting or you listen to a song or you see an amazing um, display of architecture or a movie or a play and you think to yourself, There is something about God here. There's something about the wonder that I see that is amazing to me. And I can see something of God here. Maybe this is because I grew up in the suburbs. But when I'm in New York City and I'm walking along and I see a giant building, you know, like one world trade, I I still am filled with a little um, sense of wonder. And I just kind of look up and I think, wow, that's tall. How do we do that? Um. Because it's truly amazing what humanity is capable of in so many areas. And yet, at the same time, then we turn on the news and we hear about what ISIS is doing and human trafficking and things like that. And we think, how is humanity capable of so much evil, so much wickedness? It's glory and garbage mixed together. And it's because we alone were made in God's image to reflect into the world And yet we've rebelled against him by our sin. Listen to this quote by Michael Ovi, who writes this. 
should have it on the screens. Um, Defying God is not just an act of political rebellion. It is a property act. It is stealing something that belongs to someone else. My use of gifts or talents for purposes other than those which God gave them is an act of robbery. When someone commits fornication with another consenting adult, there is the double theft of stealing the gift of sexuality, both with regard to oneself and with regard to the other person. You see, what he's saying here is he's trying to draw us deeper into why God made us and what our sin means. He's saying that um, sin is not simply violating God's law. It's certainly that, but it's more than that. We may think, how is sex between two consenting adults? How is that sinful? Um, How does that hurt anyone else? But when we do that, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. When God's authority in our lives is total, it's over every area of our lives. So our sexuality is something to steward. And so is the sexuality of someone else. And when we don't steward it well, we disobey God We hurt the other person, and ultimately, we hurt ourselves, even if we don't think so at the time. Our sin, brothers and sisters, is far more pervasive than we think, because all our time, all our talents, all our treasures belong to God. And when we misuse or when we abuse any of these things, we are like the prodigal son squandering the father's estate, or we're like the older brother despising our father's rule in our lives we've all left home and if we've all left home that leaves the question all right what's what's naturally the next question if we've left home how can we come home how can we come home to god coming home and this takes us to uh the main part of our parable where the son um he goes out and he hits rock bottom and he realizes you know what actually my life was much better um when I was with my dad, so I'm going to come home. And I want to give you a little bit of uh, cultural context for the passage. First of all, in this culture, people married very young. Um, So in all likelihood, uh, the prodigal son is in his late teens, perhaps. So parents, imagine that your 18-year-old high school senior comes home, because the prodigal son could have been around that age, and he says, yo, daddy-o, I'm, uh, I want my inheritance now, and I want it put in a in a bank account, and I want a credit card, and I'm leaving home. And by the way, make me breakfast while you're at it. And parents, um, how would you respond? Most of you can't share that response out loud. I understand that. I probably can't either. The father was the patriarch of the family, and this was a patriarchal society. For the younger son let alone the firstborn, but for the younger son to speak this way was to ask for a beating or possibly expulsion from the family. This is not something you went and you said to your dad. Jewish law did make a provision for an inheritance happening before the patriarch died, but it was very rare. For one thing, the inheritance was not passed out until the patriarch died. And even then, the older son would receive the majority. The younger son would receive one-third of the father's estate. If there were two sons, the older son would receive two-thirds of the father's estate. And, of course, we know, this is just common sense, 
Um, wealth was much less liquid in these days than it is today. Today, um, very easy to, to uh, liquefy assets and to you know, pass out an inheritance in cash. Not so in this day. Most of the family wealth would have been tied to land and to cattle. And so obviously the father, in order to give his son the third of the estate, would have had to apportion probably a third of his land, perhaps land that's been in the family for generations, and give it to the son. Yet the remarkable thing is the father grants the son's request, doesn't he? And it's important. um, We're not told exactly why, but it's important to remember that in this story, the father, the patriarch represents God and the two sons represent humanity. And so we see a reflection here of the truth that God has granted humanity uh, freedom and humanity has taken that freedom and become slaves to sin, which is what we see in Genesis 3. So the father grants um, the uh, inheritance to the son. The son um, goes ahead and makes it liquid. He sells the land and um, he goes off and he starts living the high life. He starts living, um, you know, the, the, the Las Vegas life of I'm going to burn through this paper as fast as I possibly can. Um, I'm going to I'm going to live like I'm an heiress. Uh, the, the image we get here is almost like we would see on the cover of People magazine of, of some heiress, some teenage heiress who's been given uh, or heir who's been given hundreds of million dollars and is just squandering it and making all this foolish decisions. The prodigal son here is the car crash we can't look away from. He is living out of control. And finally, he reaches rock bottom. He takes a job on a pig farm. You don't have to live in Teaneck to know that for a Jewish boy, even a non-practicing Jewish boy, even a Jewish boy who rejected the morality of his parents, to take a job on a pig farm was the most um, shameful job you could possibly take. You would only do that out of desperation. Think of a job that you would be embarrassed to tell. You'd be ashamed to even tell an old high school acquaintance about, let alone your parents. And you can imagine the shame the son felt taking a job on a pig farm. He's filled with shame. He's completely broken. The swagger, the hubris, the pride, it's all gone. He has reached rock bottom. His Facebook status says loser. He is he's got he he can't go any lower than this. He's at the bottom. And so he finally has a moment of clarity. He realizes his life was better when he was with his father. And here's the ironic thing. From a human perspective, he is at his lowest possible point. He can't get any lower. He has nothing left. But from God's perspective, this is the best possible place that he could be. Why? It's not because God loves suffering, but because now the son can finally see with clarity that living under his father's love and authority was the best place for him. The son is finally at the end of himself. His pride and his arrogance have been smashed to smithereens. He realizes the truth of Hebrews 11:25, which says um, sin satisfies for a season, but then leaves us worse than we were before. He's at the bottom. And this is the beginning of true repentance. You want to know how you can come home to God, brothers and sisters? You feel like you're away from God. You have to come to the end of yourself like the prodigal son. You have to reach rock bottom. And so the son says, 
perhaps I can be one of my dad's hired servants. Now, just to give you some context here, a hired servant in this cultural context was a day laborer, was probably paid the day that they finished their work. This person would have been even lower than a slave because a slave was was still considered kind of a quasi member of the family, would still be taken care of better. But a day laborer is something you someone you would just hire for a day. You could get rid of them anytime you wanted. He's saying, maybe I could be the lowest possible person working for my dad. He, he knows he has no justification for what he's done. And so he comes up with this speech that he's going to he's going to tell his dad. And we can tell by this speech, he has no pride left. He has no um, arrogance left. He's simply going to say, I've sinned against God. He recognizes that. And I've sinned against you. And I want to be um, if you'd have mercy and grace upon me, dad, I know I don't deserve it. But can I come back and work for you? Ask yourself this, parents. How would you have responded? I know that uh, many of us would be overjoyed to see our child again. But again, I want you to remember this. The prodigal son has squandered one third of his family's estate. An estate that probably supported other family members He has, in all certainty, publicly humiliated his father and his family's name. Um, In verse 30 of of, uh, Luke 15, the older son is angry and he says to his dad, how can you have a party for this son of yours? He squandered your money with prostitutes. And, And a great question commentators ask is, how does the older son know that the younger son, who's been off in a far country, has been squandering the wealth with prostitutes? And it's probably because the rumor mill has the information has traveled all the way back home that this family is is shamed the younger son has brought great shame on his family this is public scandal stuff and the younger son has done permanent damage to his family's finances and reputation it will take years to restore what he has done so what does the father do does he wash his hands of his son Does he say, um, I want nothing to do with you again? Does he make his son perform some kind of public penance? No, he runs to the son. Another cultural note. Family patriarchs don't go running down dirt roads to to go see their sons. Um, Think of the show, think of the characters in Downton Abbey. Um, Not a show I've ever seen. This has just been reported to me. All right, just want to make that clear. Um, but, you know, in Downton Abbey, the main characters, they're always dressed to the nines. They have their dress coats on. They have their dinner jackets. They have their beautiful dresses. The landed estate wasn't wearing clothes that you got dirty in. You had hired people. You had servants to do this sort of thing. Exact same thing for the patriarch of the family. Would have been dressed in royal robes. Um, would not have ever run down a dirt road and actually probably would have had to grab his robes pull them up and run. One of my seminary professors um, who I served as a teaching assistant for, Dan Doriani, a man I I have a lot of affection for, New Testament scholar, said that when he taught this passage, he wanted to communicate to his church one time how embarrassing the father's actions would have been. And so he said what he did was he took his suit coat and he tucked it in to his slacks and he went ahead and he preached the rest of the sermon with his suit coat tucked into his slacks Because he wanted to communicate how embarrassing it is for the patriarch of a family to go running down a dirt road to see his son. 
Why? Because he loves his son. He doesn't care that patriarchs aren't supposed to do that. The servants were probably in the fields watching him, and they dropped their, their, their tools as they, saw, they said, do you, do you see that? That's the patriarch. He's running down a dirt road. The father doesn't care. That's what love does, doesn't it? If you've ever been in love, you know love makes you do crazy things. And um, those of us who've been in love have probably all done some crazy things for the sake of love. Public uh, proper decor is out the window. Love throws customs and manners and those things you're not supposed to do. It throws them out the window because all love can think about is the beloved. That's the father. All he can think about is my son whom I love, who left this family and left this home and chased freedom somewhere else and he couldn't find it, has come back. And I love him. And you see what happens here. This is amazing. The son has this speech that he's prepared to say to his dad and he can't even get it out. Because before he can even talk, before he can even give this proposal of dad, hire me to be one of your servants, his dad is already hugging him and kissing him and saying, son, I love you. Welcome home. So all the son can say is, I'm, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry for my sin. This is true reconciliation. The father says, put a robe on him, a ring on his fingers, sandals on his feet. Let's have a party. This is what joy looks like. The father isn't angry. He isn't bitter. He's filled with joy. Love delights itself in the other. Love forgives. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Have you ever experienced, let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced deep forgiveness from someone? Have you ever experienced um, telling something, telling someone you love something very shameful and having the experience of them look you in the eyes and say, I forgive you and I love you and I am not ending this relationship. I am with you all of the way. Have you experienced the power of forgiveness like the prodigal son experiences here? If you never have then today you can. All your mistakes, all your shame, all the things you would sooner die than have someone else see has been forgiven through the work of Jesus on the cross. If you've never experienced that freedom, you can have it today because that forgiveness is available to you through the work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. We need to remember how grace works. How does grace work? On the one hand, grace is the easiest thing you'll ever, you'll ever receive. Because grace, by definition, is not something you can earn or something you can qualify for. So on the one hand, grace is the easiest thing you'll ever receive. On the other hand, grace can be the hardest gift you will ever receive. Because in order to receive grace, you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to bow the knee to Jesus and surrender the idea that all of us have that we can run our lives better than God can. You have to bow the knee to the Lord. Grace is not God helps those who help themselves. Grace is not even this. It's not even 99% God, 1% you or me. 
Grace is 100% the work of God in our lives. That's why we aren't saved by faith. I say, hold on a second, Pastor. We're not saved by faith. I thought GRC teaches we're saved by faith. We are sa- we're not saved by faith. We're saved by the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection. Faith is the instrument that unites us to Jesus to receive his work. If we, see, if we say we are saved by faith, and I know what we often mean when we say that, but if we say that and we stop there, then, then we can even make faith a work. Look at how much I, I've trusted God. But faith, brothers and sisters, is just the instrument that connects us to Jesus and his saving work. Yes, we are saved by faith as long as we realize that faith is a gift that unites us to the saving work of Jesus. If you were here last week, Claude gave a great illustration of what I'm talking about. He said, it's, you know, you're, you're outside and there's a lake and it's frozen. And Claude said, it really doesn't matter if, if you have um, tons of faith that that lake will hold you up. If you run out there on that ice and the ice is too thin, you're going to go down. And it, and if the ice is strong enough, it doesn't matter if you, you know, do a full dive out on the ice, which I wouldn't recommend, or, you know, you just tiptoe out on the ice. If the ice is strong enough, it will hold you. What's the point of that illustration? It's not the quantity of our faith. It's the object of our faith that matters. Jesus is the object of our faith, and our faith is in him, and it's fully trusting in his saving work on our behalf. Just two quick points of application to wrap up. And then we'll get to the end of the story. Two quick points of application. First of all, some of you here may be thinking, um, God can't fix me. He doesn't have that much grace. One time I was talking to a woman and she just looked at me. I was talking about Jesus and she looked at me and she said, Josh, I have a past. And I'm thinking, I have a past too. Um, you know, but then a couple of minutes later, it became clear what she meant by that. She, what she meant was I've made mistakes in my past. And the gospel is a wonderful, the only wonderful remedy for that. If you think your past is too much for God to save, then to be honest, you still don't understand grace. Because the gospel is not clean up your life and come to Jesus. The gospel has come to Jesus right now and receive forgiveness and acceptance in him. Others of you can relate more to the older brother. You, um, you don't understand why the father would accept his younger son back. And um, really, there's a whole other message in this text about anger because the younger son is, I mean, the older son is angry. He's angry with his dad. And he thinks he's always done the right thing, but he's blind to his self-righteousness and his pride. And let me ask you, is that you angry with God filled with bitterness about how your life is gone. God hasn't been fair to you. He hasn't given you the things you deserve. Is that you? Then you also, you need to remember and understand what grace is because he's given you his son. The other thing I want to say is this. All of us probably know people in our lives who we think are too far gone for the grace of Jesus to reach. We think, you know, I've got this family member, I've got this friend, it may be a child of yours, it may even be your spouse, and you think, this person, they don't accept the gospel, they don't accept Jesus, and I I tried, I want them to, I've been in relationship with them, but it seems like they won't come to Jesus. And if this parable teaches us anything, brothers and sisters, it's that no one is too far out of the reach for God. Don't give up. 
don't quit. Don't stop pursuing them. Don't stop praying for them. Maybe even now the name of a friend or family member or acquaintance is coming to your mind who you want them to know Jesus and they don't know Jesus. Be encouraged by this parable. If there's anyone who doesn't deserve the grace of God, it's the prodigal son. And yet look at the father's love and acceptance of him. I want to conclude with this. Um, I wonder if when Jesus ended this story, Peter, and I'll use Peter because I can relate to Peter so well. Peter looked at John. Jesus finishes the parable and he said, John, I think Jesus forgot the end. Did you notice how the parable ends? The father says to this older son, come in. And we don't know what happens. So let me ask you this. Did Jesus forget the end of the parable? Or was the end of the parable lost? And the answer, of course, is no. Jesus didn't forget the end of the parable. Jesus was a master teacher. He knew exactly what he was doing. And there is no ending intentionally of this parable. Why? Because Jesus wants his listeners and now his readers and now you and me today to ask the same question the older son was faced with. Will I go into the party? Will I sit here and resist the grace of God and say no and keep doing my own thing? Or will I go in to the party? Brothers and sisters, who likes parties? Everybody, okay? That's a safe thing to say. Everybody likes parties. And how is God's joy and his celebration depicted in this passage? It's depicted with a party. Just earlier in the previous parable, um, we're talking about the lost sheep. Jesus says, there is much rejoicing in heaven when one lost sheep comes home. And to kill the fattened calf, again, to give a little cultural context, was not a small thing. This is an epic party that's going down. And I'll just end by saying this. Will you join the party? That's a question the older, oldest son had to ask. It's a question you and I have to ask. Will you join the party? Will you go in? Will you receive God's love and his grace? Or will you stay outside the party and live in your own um, so-called freedom, so-called happiness, um, trying to find joy, purpose, meaning in anywhere else but Jesus? All of us must ask this question, will I go in to the party? For some of us, For some of you, it may mean trusting in Jesus for the first time. Peter, myself, one of the elders, would love to talk to you about that. For others of us, it means recommitting our lives, just saying, Jesus, um, help me to repent every day and trust in you more. And remembering what the Father says to the older son. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. That's a promise for you and me, brothers and sisters. How will we respond? Will we go in? I pray by God's grace we will. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this magnificent story. Thank you for your grace. We pray we would enter in into the greatest party that can ever be, the party of the, the supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast which awaits us in glory. We lean upon you now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.